This is an old message I preached back in June of 2012 based on Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 to 14. The title of this message was, Am I Called? So, Am I Called? Matthew 22 verses 1 to 14. Over the next five weeks, we are looking at a series of debates between Jesus and the religious experts of his day. Now, I realize that a debate may not be all that exciting an event compared to, say, the Euro 2012 finals happening tonight. We want action. We want to root for our favorite team. In comparison, a boring intellectual discussion on doctrine and religious issues hardly makes for a fun night out with the guys at the pub. Yet, whenever I get a phone call or email saying to me, Calvin, could we talk about something important, please? I have yet to meet up with such a person only to end up talking about football. It's always something urgent. It's always something uh, personal. These debates between Jesus and the religious leaders are not there to entertain us, though the topics of these debates certainly are intriguing. Why should I support a government I don't, do, I don't didn't vote for? Is the whole idea of resurrection from the dead nonsensical? Can you seriously believe that God had a son and his name is Jesus? These are the topics that Jesus deals with, which we'll be looking at closely in the coming weeks. They're all there in chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel. These are interesting topics. These are intriguing issues. But more than that, they have eternal significance. The Bible presents us with two ways to live, just two. And what these debates are designed to do is reveal which team you are rooting for, which side you're really on. So Matthew 22 verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Jesus tells a story about heaven and he says, think of a big wedding dinner and all the decorations laid out, all the food prepared, all the hundreds of waiters, uh, chefs, and cooking staff on the ready, but not one single guest in sight. The hall is empty, not because everyone got the wrong date in their calendars, verse 3 says, but because they refused to come. What would you do? What the main character of the story does is he sends out even more reminders. Look at verse 4. Then he sent out more servants and said, Tell those who had been invited that I prepared my dinner, dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. He sends out a copy of the menu. Roast duck, lobster noodles, abalone mushrooms, he says, tell them all the food is ready. Just come. But look at their reaction in verse 5. And notice there are two layers of responses to the king's invitation. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The first group just tears up the invite and goes back to watching football. We've got better things to do, you know, more important things to do, than to spend Saturday night at a party, no matter how nice the food might be. That's the first response. And if you're honest, you know, we've all done this. We've got loads of invites on Facebook, which we just ignore. We conveniently chuck 
that wedding invitation card in the trash. Can't you see I'm busy? The second group is more extreme. Verse 6, they seized the servants, mistreated them, meaning they physically abused, even tortured them, and killed them. <coughs> there are two levels of responses to the same invitation. One ignores it, the other violently rejects it. Two very different responses, and that's important to see because what happens next. This king, the king, sends his armies to punish both groups. He destroys their entire city. Look at verse 7. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What's going on? Understandably, a lot of people read this and they immediately get that Jesus is talking about God and they object that the king is acting unfairly towards his subjects. It's just dinner, they might say. I mean, if he was just punishing the guys who beat up the servants and killed them, that would make sense. But burning down the entire city, that's going too far. So the objection goes. What is so valuable about this parable is that it helps us to understand what the Bible means by sin. Jesus is teaching us that sinning against God means rebelling against the king. It's not just breaking a rule. It's not just being bad and sticking pieces of gum under the table in class. To sin is to say to God, we don't want you to be king over our lives. And this parable is designed to show us just how all of us rebel against God in one of two ways, through idolatry or through rejection. All of us rebel against God either through idolatry or rejection. What do I mean? The first group of people we read in verse 5, they went off. And by that we mean, we think it means they pay no attention to the invitation. But Matthew adds the words, one to his field, another to his business. And the last description is very emphatic in the Greek, as it literally reads to his own, idion, uh, field or farm, meaning they own their own land. They own their own business. And that's the emphasis. They were landowners. They were business owners. See, the basis of comparison wasn't food, how lavish it was for the king to slaughter his cows and oxen, how amazing the evening, evening entertainment was going to be. No, the comparison was that of wealth and power. I have my own land. I have my own business. Who is this king to tell me what to do? I am my own king, and that's idolatry. Idolatry is turning away from God to do something to something else other than God and turning that thing into God. Or to put it another way, idolatry is the worship of something less than God. When we use excuses like, I am busy with work or study, or even family issues to talk about God right now, and I know how acceptable these excuses sound even here in the Chinese church sometimes. What we are really saying is, instead of worshiping God, I would rather worship my work. I would rather worship my studies. I would rather worship my family. They are excuses we use to turn away from worshiping the true and living God. And that's the first way. We rebel against God through idolatry. The second way is outright rejection. But I want you to see that it is a rejection not simply of God himself through violence, anger, murder. No, it's the rejection of his word. 
Notice again who the people lash out against. It's the messengers. It's the servants who bring the message of the king again and again to these same people, calling the hearers to respond to the king's invitation. The villagers didn't grab their pitchforks and storm the castle in order to attack the king's army. Rather, what they did was more cowardly and at the same time more sinister. They took their aggression out on the servants of the king. Literally, the word is douloi, which is the word for slaves. These weren't soldiers. They were simply postmen carrying the same message. And by the villagers' act of violence, they were sending a message back to the king. A message which read, we reject your word of invitation. We reject your command of authority. Together, these two responses constitute one act of rebellion against the authority of the king, which is why Jesus tells the parable. He's saying to the religious teachers and Pharisees, do you know who you're dealing with? God is a king who graciously invites us into his presence. He calls us to celebrate the wedding of his son. He calls us to respond to his word of grace. When we reject his word, it's because we are rebelling against his authority. When we reject the invitation of his son's wedding, it's because we despise how much the king loves his son and we reject how much the king wants us to glorify him through his son. The consequence of this rebellion is the complete destruction of the people and their city. Again, it is vital that we notice that judgment falls on two separate levels, the people and their city. The king sends his army to punish the wrongdoers, those who killed his messengers, together with those who stood and let this happen. But he also burns down their city. These series of encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders takes place at a specific time and place. Chapter 21 is a turning point in the whole gospel as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem as the long-awaited king riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that this was the Messiah, the chosen king by God to bring order and salvation to the people of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital, not unlike London. It was the place where everything significant happens, you know, the Olympics, the Queen's Jubilee, the opening scenes of Apprentice. But more than that, Jerusalem was God's city. This was the city of the great King David. This was the city of God's temple where his presence dwelt, which bore his name. And all the religious leaders and Pharisees would have instantly understood what Jesus meant when he spoke of the king destroying their city. He was talking about Jerusalem. It wasn't their city, it was God's. But by their idolatry, by their continual rejection of God's word, Jerusalem, which was historically a focus of so much of God's attention, which scripturally was the focus of God's revelation, which liturgically was the center of God's worship and presence. This city was now the object of God's shame and God's judgment. It had become their city, not God's. If you look back a few verses, back to chapter 21 and verse 45, we read, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. 
This parable was directed at people who were confident of their standing in God's kingdom because of their position on earth. They were church leaders. They were Bible experts. And just in case we are quick to then assume they weren't consistent in their living or that they were too liberal in their thinking, we need to understand that the Pharisees were among the most zealous individuals known in history to apply God's laws in everyday living. They memorized the five books of Moses, word for word, including Leviticus. Many served in the temple courts for generations. They observed all the cleanliness laws. They gave their tithes and offerings every week. They regarded God as holy, righteous, and awesome. In many ways, the Pharisees were the evangelicals of their day. They were mainstream, respective, authoritative, and biblical. They were religious. Yet through this parable, Jesus exposed how religion can actually lead us away from God. It can even lead us to rebel against God. We see this in the way the city dwellers were repeatedly described and as invited, as invited. Verse three, the king sent his servants to those who had been invited. Verse four, tell those who had been invited. Verse eight, those I invited did not deserve to come. Uh, the Greek word keklemenoi <laughs> comes from the root word kaleo, which simply means called. I do apologize, this was a very old sermon. I used to put a lot of Greek in it and I don't anymore. But yeah, these were the called ones. In fact, whenever we see the word tell in the parable, it's the same word for call, meaning the king sent, sent his servants again and again to call those ha who have been called. The parable is summed up in the end in verse 14 as, for many are called, but few are chosen. We misunderstand the word call today whenever we say, I think God is calling me to be a pastor, or I feel God's call to me to go to China. And whenever we use the word call exclusively and primarily to mean some kind of mystical experience which spiritually authenticates God's direction for our lives, we display that we are dangerously close to being in the same camp as the Pharisees and religious leaders Jesus addresses in this parable. They took God's call for granted. They assumed by their status and religiosity and knowledge that therefore God was going to accept them based on their status, religiosity, and knowledge. And what they missed was God's call as his gracious invitation to glorify him through his son. For us today as the church, which means called out in Greek, you know, ekklesia ek or kaleo called, uh, called out, how much more does this parable remind us the importance of responding to God's primary call to belong to Jesus Christ? And this is Romans 1 verse 6. And not to turn away because of idolatry or because of the rejection of his word. In other words, you might have been coming here to the Chinese church for years. You know, week after week, you hear about Jesus. But have you ever RSVP'd his call to belong to his son? 
Don't mistake your attendance or even your long service record as your basis of acceptance before God. That was the danger of the Pharisees and religious leaders. Just because you're a musician, just because you are a church leader, in fact, all the more because you are a leader, the Bible is asking you, have you answered God's call to be in Jesus Christ? Jesus is speaking to leaders, to old timers, to Sunday school teachers, but then he turns to the rest of us saying, how about you? As we shall see from verse 8 onwards, there is yet another invitation. The king sends out more servants, but now the call goes out to everyone, not just the privileged few. It is a call from God to rejoice in Jesus Christ, his son. And what I want you want to put to you today is that this call isn't just a call to be in heaven. Answering this call involves God's plan for the church right here on earth. Verse 8. Then he called to then he said to his servants, sorry, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Go to the street corners, says the king, and call anyone you find. The street corners, the NIV is not so much talking about sidewalks or street corners where you find a Starbucks or and as such, but actually it describes a busy road. That is the roads that lead out of the city where they turn into highways. The image then is of these servants going out as far as they can to the very edge of the kingdom to invite everyone and anyone they meet. Hence, by the end of the exercise, the entire wedding party is filled with every kind of person. Verse 10 says both good and bad. This isn't talking about heaven. I mean, it is talking about heaven, but it's not just heaven. It's describing God's open, free, and gracious invitation to enter his kingdom through Jesus Christ. The wedding banquet is for his son, after all. And yet the action of the servants in calling is now coupled with gathering, gathering, sunagugon, all that they could find. And that is the description of the church. The church is a gathering of God's people in response to God's word. God sends his word of invitation out and those who respond to his good news, his gospel, are gathered into his presence. Earlier, I mentioned that ecclesia was the New Testament word for the church, which literally meant those who were called out. In the Old Testament, however, the Hebrew kahal refers to gathering, and the two terms come together here in Jesus' parable to describe, on the one hand, God's initiative in calling his church through the gospel, you know, 1 Peter 2.9, God who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light, and on the other hand, our response as the church gathering around his word and around his son, Acts 7. 38, the church or gathering in the desert, these living words passed down to us. And the question is, how do you know you've been called? And have you answered that call? 
The picture that Jesus gives us in this parable is the gathering of the call. It's the church, which isn't a building, but people. The church, which isn't a gathering of good people, but both good and bad. The word bad actually occurs first, the bad and the good, as if to give it extra emphasis, meaning it's not just because we've done anything to deserve God's call. The church, which isn't a gathering to do good things, but a gathering in response to the good news. Did you notice that? What did they do? What did they do there? It doesn't tell us. What it does tell us three times is that God's word goes out, and it is His word which brings people in. What this teaches us is God's word gives birth to the church, not the other way around. The purpose of the church is not so much to preach God's word, as much as the church is the product of the preaching of God's word. This is important for church planting. You don't plant a church by getting a bunch of people in order to preach to them. You preach God's word, and it calls people to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. It means at times people will ignore. That's what we see in the parable. It means there will be seasons of persecution. We also see that in the parable. But God keeps sending out His word, such that when people do respond to His word, He gathers them round Jesus, and they are His church. They are the called ones. This is counterintuitive for us. We want to set up committees. We want to plan for budgets. We want to search for the right. Building and of course, you know, in doing so, we wouldn't dream of leaving out, you know, Bible study and preaching. We wouldn't do that. And yet, Jesus teaches us that through this parable, God's word is primarily responsible for gathering His people as the church, not our programs, not our planning. Preaching isn't simply the feeding of the flock. It's not something you do as part of your Sunday program. We have singing, we have offering, then we have preaching. This is something more fundamental. God's word produces God's church. That's what Jesus is saying. Meaning, when God's word is absent from our gatherings, or when the gospel takes a back seat in our meetings, you really have to start wondering if those who are gathered there in God's name truly are God's people. I understand that we need to find the right people. I know that many of us pray for God to send us the right guy, but hasn't God given us His word? The ones who carry them are here described as douloi, you know, slaves. Their job is simply to repeat the word and to deliver the message. It's not the messenger, but the message that gathers the guests into the banquet. The messenger is often ignored. He might be rejected. He might even be killed. God sends more servants carrying the same message: "Come in, rejoice in Jesus, His Son, trust in His offer of forgiveness, grace, and glory. Everything has been prepared." And the result is a full house. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse ten: full of Chinese, no; full of Cambridge students, no; full of bad and the good. Full of those near and far, full of people who weren't part of the initial guest list, full of people you would never expect to be at such a fancy affair. That is the church. The question is, is that our church? If we keep on preaching the gospel, it will be. 
go to the street corners and call anyone and everything that's and 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 sorry where am i <laughs> and call and everyone that's a very risky thing to do it is a scary thing to do and yet it is precisely what god calls us to do why so that we can have a great big church and lots of people will hear about the english congregation which meets in the middle of nowhere no because god has done all the preparations to bring all glory to his son the king says again and again i have prepared my dinner i have slaughtered my cattle the banquet is ready he has done everything he has paid for everything he has done all this for the sake of his son and the message is sent out to all who respond and join him in rejoicing over his son we speak the gospel to the end roads to anyone we can find to the good and bad to bring glory to Jesus Christ that's the last lesson we see in the parable and it might be the hardest one yet it would be great if the story ended here the guest simply having a good time the king satisfied that his event is a success everyone living happily ever after instead we read about one guy who gets thrown out instead we read about final judgment verse 11 But when the king came in to see the guests he noticed the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes friend he said how did you get in here without wedding clothes the man was speechless then the king told his attendants tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth you know, what are we to make of this the king notices a guy who doesn't have his tux on and decides to throw him out of the party how can that be fair <laughs> were the servants given instruction to invite anyone and everyone to the party irrespective of whether they were bad or good perhaps this was a homeless man it would have been very unfair to expect him to turn up in a dinner jacket and black tie wouldn't it yet that's not even the half of it the king orders the attendants to tie the poor guy up and throw him outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth this phrase occurs several times in Matthew's gospel always an, as an allusion to hell and eternal punishment it's a picture of extreme sorrow weeping together with extreme anger and resentment gnashing of teeth you know see Matthew 13:42 the parable of the weeds 13:50 the parable of the net 2451 the parable of the wicked servant 2530 the parable of the talents first of all notice that the king comes specifically to meet with this guest there are just faceless crowds there to fill empty seats this king actually is interested in who who they are he wants to see the guest face to face but as he does so he comes across one individual who isn't dressed in the proper attire he doesn't have wedding clothes which isn't a reference to expensive clothes but rather clean clothes notice how when asked this man didn't have a proper excuse verse 12 says he was speechless he didn't say i couldn't afford it i didn't have it i didn't know but rather by his speechlessness it implies that he didn't bother he wasn't bothered and he didn't care not even to put on a clean t-shirt he turned up presuming the graciousness of the king he thought he could hide in the crowd 
On the surface, this seems superficial. It implies that God is looking for decorum, that the king was looking for external quality, wedding clothes that made his guests suitable and acceptable. Yet the Bible repeatedly uses the change of clothing as a picture of what happens when God covers us with this external, outer righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel describes how God clothes his bride with fine linen and costly garments. Paul calls on believers to put off the old sinful nature and to put on the new created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Elsewhere, he tells us uh, to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ, Romans 13. In each and every one of these references, God clothes the Christian believer with an external beauty and righteousness something we did not earn or deserve. Rather, it's everything Jesus did for us on the cross that makes us acceptable before the King of the universe and God, our Heavenly Father. In fact, when God looks at the believer clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it means he looks upon this former rebel and sinner as he does his own son. In Jesus, we are truly and wholly loved by the Father. One last thing. I find it interesting how the king addresses the man as friend. Friend. At first glance, it may appear that the king is simply playing the gracious host. He doesn't say, hey, you. <laughs> he calls this man who's presumed upon the king's invitation his friend. And though the man was inappropriately dressed, the king still gives him the opportunity to respond to the charge. The particular word used here in the king's address of friend, hetairi, occurs only three times in the New Testament, and all three are found here in Matthew's Gospel. In the first two instances, here and back in chapter 20, as part of the parable of the workers spoken by the ruler, addressing his servants with gentleness in a moment of tension, addressing an audience that is antagonistic towards the speaker, so in the parable of the vineyard in chapter 20, the workers confront their boss. They grumble against him and gang up against him. The landowner says to one of them, friend, friend. Interestingly, in the third and last instance of Matthew's gospel, we find this address of friend used by Jesus Christ himself. It occurs a few pages on in chapter 26. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is betrayed by his disciple, Judas Iscariot, he is betrayed by his friend. Judas arrived with a mob, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and elders, perhaps thinking he could catch Jesus off guard. Judas devised the plan. And this is Matthew 26, verse 48. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Jesus addresses his betrayer as friend. You see, Jesus knows precisely what his friend of his has in store for him. Yet unlike the parable of the wedding banquet, it isn't the friend who is bound and thrown out into the darkness. Instead, Jesus would be the one who is arrested. It would be his hands and feet that was bound. It was Jesus who would be interrogated and put on trial. Jesus would be stripped of his clothes, 
stripped of all his dignity and hung on the cross. And it would be Jesus near the end of his life who would be alone in the dark as he cried out on the cross to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus bore our punishment for sin and rebellion. He was thrown into darkness. He bore our nakedness and shame. And it is this act of sacrifice and friendship shown by Jesus Christ on the cross from which we receive our righteousness, from which we are clothed in holiness, through which we are loved as sons and daughters of God. Jesus ends his parable with these words, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's an unexpected conclusion. I would have expected him to say, for many are called, but few answer the call. Isn't that a consistent picture we get from the parable? The king sends out invite after invite, but not everyone responds. Not everyone takes it seriously. Or some of us would have expected Jesus to say, for many are called, but few live up to the call. Thinking the guy without the wedding clothes as a parable of those who presume on God's call and don't take it seriously. They don't live up to the call. But no, Jesus says, few are chosen. Meaning salvation is God's prerogative from start to finish. Salvation is God's grace in calling as well as in choosing. The word chosen is the same word elsewhere translated as elected. It is saying that God is the one who calls us into his presence and God is the one who enables us by his spirit to answer that call. It is, an, it is a totally unexpected conclusion to the parable. What does this mean for us as Christians today? Well, number one, God has prepared everything for our salvation. Salvation is entirely at God's initiative and expense. The king repeatedly says, the wedding banquet is ready, it's ready, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and cattle have been slaughtered. And for us as Christians, God even clothes us with his righteousness in Jesus Christ to make us acceptable in his presence. God has prepared it all. He's done it all, sacrificed it all to ensure our entrance into his kingdom and our continued faithfulness to him as our king. So number one, God has prepared everything for salvation. Number two, God's call is good news in his son. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us it's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. It's not just about the food. <laughs> In fact, it isn't at all about blessings or the food. It's all about the son, the king's son. God's plan of salvation is all for all creation to recognize the glory of his one and only son. He sends out messenger after messenger with the same news that Jesus Christ, his son, is Lord. Number three, rejection of Jesus is at the heart of our sinful rebellion against God. Jesus spoke this parable against the Pharisees and the religious leaders, not simply to expose their double standards, but to reveal how their rejection of him was indicative of their rejection of God. Through idolatry, the leaders had chosen to make God's salvation about themselves trusting in their privilege, their heritage, their traditions, and their status, 
Through pride and rebellion, they would initiate the murder of Jesus by condemning him to death on the cross because they rejected Jesus as God's chosen Messiah. Number four, God's call is sovereign and gracious. God's call is sovereign and gracious. It doesn't mean that we aren't responsible for our actions, but it does mean that salvation is by grace from start to finish. For you to have heard the gospel and for it to have made sense in your hearts and minds that Jesus really did die for me on the cross, that's God's gracious call for you and for me. And for you to respond, God, please forgive and change me through the cross. Well, that too is God's grace working in you. It means that we should never take God's take the gospel for granted, but always seek to hear it and to be changed by it, by this message of forgiveness and reconciliation offered to us by God in His Son. As Christians today, we sometimes obsess over the question, have I been called? Thinking that it is our calling that sets us apart as something special or unique in God's purposes for our lives. Jesus, what he does is he brings the attention back to God. It is God who calls and God who enables us to answer that call. Now, first and foremost, as a call to respond to his salvation in Jesus Christ, God sends out his word, the gospel calling everyone, anyone, to turn to him in repentance to rejoice in his Son. He sends out his servants to speak the gospel clearly and faithfully, calling his people to give their lives in obedience and love to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the God who calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light, who calls his enemies, his friends, who call sinful rebels his sons and daughters, making them holy and clothing them with righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross. And I end with the lyrics. I think we use this as a closing song, Hear the Call of the Kingdom. And these are the lyrics from um, uh, one of the verses. Hear the call of the kingdom. Lift your eyes to the king. Let his song rise within you as a fragrant offering of how God, rich in mercy, came in Christ to redeem all who trust in his unfailing grace. King of heaven, we will answer the call. We will follow, bringing hope to the world, filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. This is Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, um, message entitled, Am I Called? Heavenly Father, thank you for this call that comes from you by grace from beginning to the end. Help us to answer that call, also by your grace, that we might receive this forgiveness, this salvation, this joy and blessing through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.